Hello, this is your host, Eric Fleming. Before I get to the episode, I want to follow up on my Roe Repeal Observation podcast and further address the June 24, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. That's podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds, including the ones I mentioned in the Roe Repeal Observation Podcast. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Thank you. Hello. And welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. Uh, as I am recording this, this is Independence Day, uh, the 4th of July. And this is supposed to be a day where we celebrate freedom. And considering what we've experienced recently, that's under question. Uh, so later on in the podcast, kind of give my take on that. Um, but first I want to deal with, um, well, I shouldn't say deal, but, um, I want to bring on a lady who has written a book called Scapegoat No More, Ways to Understanding Scapegoating and How to Stop It. That's Ways to Understanding Scapegoating and How to Stop It. Scapegoat No More is the name of the book. And the author's name is Gina Marie Dobson. And um, as usual, I'm going to do her intro and all that, and then we'll get into the interview. Um, but I think this is, this is going to be a unique perspective. I think this is going to be something that is going to be reflective and hopefully, uh, we'll touch on that in an interview. And then we'll also explain, um, how to get a copy of the book if your interest is piqued. So let me go ahead and, and, um, do my normal introduction. Born and raised in the beautiful state of New York, Gina Dobson is the youngest of three girls. Her father and mother knew Gina was her own person and allowed her to develop her talents without stifle. Described by the masses as being eccentric and beating to her own drum, Gina knew that it would be a matter of time before she would engage the world platform for something great. Her gift and passion for singing became a way for her to connect to her true calling. 
It was during her time spent in Rochester that she was availed the opportunities to home into her craft. Gina grew up in church and sang in a gospel choir since the age of five. Her love for music continued in church and then to community choirs. Gina was a choral member of the production Porgy and Bess. Her Christian roots were cultivated at a local Baptist church back east and provided her many opportunities, one of which was to become a principal soloist with the Psalms of Praise Young Adults Gospel Choir. Gina attended Johnson C. Smith University, a historical black college in Charlotte, North Carolina, obtaining a bachelor's in communication arts. Soon after graduation, she realized that her passion was advocating for children using her skills taught through her academic training. She began graduate school at Roberts Wesleyan College and received a master's of arts in education. Gina's leading of Jesus Christ led her to the completion of the Masters of Divinity from Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York, along with completed work towards said degree at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Her third master's degree was completed in 2018, obtaining a Master's of Science in Educational Administration at National University in San Diego, California, as an English teacher. Gina is a Christian actor, filmmaker, singer, activist, and educator. She loves Jesus Christ with all of her mind, body, soul, and spirit. She is led of his spirit to complete her assignment lent to to the earth. Her motto is two roads diverge into the woods. I took the one less traveled and that has made all of the difference. And that's a quote from uh, the poet, Robert Frost. Uh, It was actually President Kennedy's pretty uh, favorite quote as well. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, it is my distinct honor to bring to you the author of the book, Scapegoat No More, Ms. Gina Marie Dobson. All right, Gina Maria Dobson. In the in the intro, I said Marie, but it's Maria. So I'm glad Gina Maria Dobson. Uh, and the the title of the book is "Stop Scapegoat No More," not just "Scapegoat No More." But despite all that, I got Miss Gina here. So how are you? I'm blessed and highly favored. I'm feeling really good. Happy Fourth. Well, happy Fourth to you. It's it's not so happy to me but i'll 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 address that in the second half of the podcast when you're off the air of course i know where you're going i'm gonna be in your amen corner (laughs) yeah um but normally i try to um either pull a quote or um you know something that uh is related to the guest and i try to get that out first and so I did pull something from the book. It says, there is a tension in American culture. It suggests that if we look right, eat right, talk right, do right, life will be grand. Not so, at least not always. We can do all the right things and still feel pain behind our makeup, suits, ties, degrees, accomplishments, and successes. We need to talk about our victimization we receive from others. Now I gather that is kind of the mission of of the book, right? Right. 
So what was, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. So what I will say is it, it sort of starts at this, at this little minute structure where I talk about the familial structure, the ways in which a child is targeted typically in a family from a mar narcissist mother. But then as I delve into the topic, I realize that it's more than just a family structure, but it's actually institutional. So then I go into the workplace mobbing. I myself was a victim of workplace stakeholder. And then finally, the, the boogeyman in the room that no one wants to talk about is institutionalized, which is the ways in which um, structurally people in the other groups, like black and brown, specifically whom I talk, uh, of, are marginalized in a way that, that white folk feel that we're un-American for even having discussions about racism. And so what we have to do is play small codes, which do all the right things, get the accoutrements of degrees and, and accolades and all of these honorariums. But yet, at the end of the day, we see what happened to Jalen Walker in Akron, Ohio, who was murdered by cops. 60, 60 bullets were riddled into this young man. We go overseas and we look at African migrants, 23 that were murdered by um, the country of Spain at the border of Morocco, Africa, and a city in Spain. So we see that Africans of the diaspora, no matter how much we try to, to, to make folk comfortable, no matter the successes that we've attained, the public intellectuals that express who we are as a people, we're still being killed in these streets. And so I, you know, and that's why I had to open it up. We have to talk about our victimization, not the victimhood that they try to say that we put place ourselves in, that we're always grace bathing, which is crazy phrase, but the, the victimization of just being black, that our phenotype is a threat to white America. So before we get too deep into the conversation, define scapegoat. So scapegoat comes from, uh, well, I, I was, I'm a Christian, a member of the clergy, so I want to take it from a theological aspect. Okay. If you go to this Leviticus 16, verses 6 through 10, it talks about Aaron, uh, who had a ceremonial offering every year. It was called Yom Kippur. I'm sure you know about that. So it's, it's Jewish and it's Christian. And it was years because we know that Jesus had not come to earth. He was in heaven, but he had not come to do earthly public ministry. And so in order to have propitiation of sin, we did not have Christ on earth. So we had to cleanse through twin goats. One was sacrificed, and that eradicated the sins of Israel, metaphorically, but in their heads, that's what it did. And then the other goat ran into the wilderness. And the thought was when the other goat ran into the wilderness, there went the sins of Israel. And then from there, something took on a really weird posture where all of a sudden people would get scapegoated. So scapegoated, uh, being a scapegoat is being blamed for the failures of others, right? And so it, it leads out into every faction of society, but typically it starts in the home. There's a celebrated child that do everything right uh, in the eyes of a parent, even if they're not doing anything that's spectacular. And then there's a child that, that has, I mean, done everything like from, and I say this jokingly, could have cured cancer, but there's still something that they didn't do right in the eyes of the parent. So there's even this triangulation, right? Getting the siblings to come around this targeted child, mobbing, so that the placement of the 
the narcissist parent can be ele remain elevated. So it's basically being blamed for the values of others and them not holding themselves accountable and doing the real work in a tangible way. Now, what was what was it for for our listeners' uh, benefit? What was the inspiration? Why did you decide to write it? I, I do know that it was a certain time period between when you got the inspiration and when you actually released the book or, or finished the book. But kind of kind of go into detail of what inspired you to write it. So, I mean, literally what inspired me was the Holy Spirit. I had just lost a job um, in 2012 and I had to go into unemployment. So I had all kinds of time. <laughs> looking for jobs and you know that was right around the time that the economy was still tricky because of the recession that we were trying to come from under uh during the obama administration and so i had nothing but time and so the holy spirit led me to write the book and so during that time i would go to the library because at that time i didn't have a computer and i promised myself i would write a thousand words a day i didn't know what that was but i had to come from my heart but then I felt, you know, as an academic, I probably should put some language around it, some infrastructure. And so as I researched, oh my gosh, I realized, oh my God, that was me. That's why I was let go of my job. When I thought about my intimate circles, whether that relationships uh, with ex-boyfriends or whether that relationships that were uh, with friends, I always felt like I just never fit in it and I was the target. Right, which I realized later was just a lot of intimidation because I was strong. Uh, and so I realized that I had to put a break on it because I think emotionally it was tearing me down, just kind of revisiting trauma that I didn't realize I had. But during that time, I received another job. I was blessed as a teacher because I'm in California. Uh, it wasn't hard for me to. And during that time, of course, things got busy and I would work. But then what I realized was that God wanted me to halt it because there were a lot of things that were going to erupt nationally. A lot of things, that, you know, like from 2012, I think around 2018, we started seeing an insurgency of uh, violence against black men, specifically traffic stops and being killed. Uh, and then ultimately when uh, that last man, for President Biden was an office just how he reinvigorated, you know, the racist rhetoric, the you know, almost like a Nazi kind of movement that that was thrust against black and brown bodies. And so unfortunately, his movement gave me a lot of real-time material that I could put in my book, like George Floyd. I mean that that was a smoking gun that I unleashed a lot of what now know is a real anti-black hate that we see in the United States, but obviously it's around the globe. It started in its night. And so it just made it easier for me to then uh, sort of tether the experiences that I had personally, along with what I've researched, with what we were beginning to see in the new cycle. So based on your definition, and I'm gonna get I'm gonna circle back to a lot of the stuff you just talked about. But would you say the issue of women's reproductive rights fits into your definition of scapegoating? 
or the definition of scapegoating. Right. I, I think so. I don't know if you're familiar with Bell Hooks. Yes. The late Bell Hooks, yeah. And she talked about a white imperialist, capitalist, supremacist patriarchy. So anybody that's white, straight, and male, and Christian sets the rules of engagement how we function in this world. And so, um, you know, patriarchy is very real. White male patriarchy is realer in the sense that uh, it goes back to when the feminist movement had to come into play because white men felt that women didn't need to be working. They need to be at home and taking their kids. And then, of course, we saw the stuff that these women were burning bras and they were showing that, you know, we were showing that we were more than just uh, there to be at their male gates, be there to satisfy them, their whims, but that we have brains and we are astute and we're able to um, become purveyors of thought. And so I think that that became a threat to them. And mm-hmm. so I think they felt that they had to put us in our place. But I will tell you, honestly, the road we way from what I've understood from scholars is that it's really not even about women's reproductive rights. It's about the fact that white people are about to come. I don't want to say this, but like that their numbers are getting smaller. By 2050, you know, Latino will be the number one um, populated race in the United States. So it's about white people to be killed. And so how do we stop this? We start, as Dr. Eddie Glaude said from Princeton University, seeing biracial babies on Cheerio boxes, white folk got nervous because they started seeing this demographic shift. And so really the road we wave is about how do we control the narrative? And think about what Tucker Carlson, and that's the only time we can say his name, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this preponderance of proposed evidence he has, which is all conspiracy theory, that there is a total, total replacement theory that, that, that they're gonna become extinct, which is why, um, that young man went into top Army market in Buffalo, New York, and just random people. Uh, it's about fear mongering that they are going to lose their power. And you know, even though that's that's heinous, it's it's entitlement, it's supremacist. I can understand from where they are not agreeing that after 400 years of being in control, all of a sudden that get politics. That's and so they're fighting, they're clamoring. How do we? How do we regain our posture in society? And so that's what the road we way. But it's it, it's couched behind evangelical white people that says we have to save unborn babies. Well, what about the, the ones that were born that are being killed in the streets? Right. Are you are you clamoring to save them? No, they how many no. Uh, yeah. no, they're they're cutting the funding for for those folks, they're, they're cutting the funding. If they have a mental illness, they're cutting the funding for that. If they, if it's about right. education, they're cutting the funding for that. It's, it's, right. you know, we used to say it was pro fetus and then mm-hmm. you on your own, right? Uh, it's kind of a, a bad play on Rousseau's quote that is like you're born free and then everywhere else you're in chains. And that, mm-hmm. that to me is kind of the mantra on that particular issue. But I, but I want to get back to what you were talking about, about us being scapegoats, right? And you have some very interesting chapter names in the book, but you talk about 
Like chapter seven is about racism. Chapter seven deals with slavery. Chapter 11, the plot to eliminate black men. And chapter 14, internalized oppression. I picked those out because a, a, a lot of what we have dealt with as black people has been we we are the boogeyman if we have always been the excuse for poor whites not to get ahead right and then and then i look at the when i started thinking about questions to ask you i started thinking about the willie lynch letter and how that pits us against each other it's like the light-skinned blacks blame the dark-skinned blacks for being in the condition in and then dark-skinned blacks blame the, the light-skinned blacks for not getting freedom right and and right. and so i think this whole and that's why i believe your book i know you know is divinely inspired but i think other people will pick up on it as well is that you're 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 laying out the core reasons why we are in the situation we're in is that we've allowed ourselves to be defined by somebody else and 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 not taking the reins to define ourselves now i said all that is is am i even close to what you're trying to do with the book that was actually a treatise and i'm ready for you to run workshops <laughs> i gotta plug you in <laughs> i mean you 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 absolutely nailed it on the head and i think that just being able to have that total disruption where we're able to say you know it's really not us and i love that you brought up about the poor whites let's talk about the ones in appalachia and in the midwest that are poorer than poor and voted for donald trump because what he did, using what you, you laid out perfectly about this internal oppression, right, that we have oppression within our communities, not just even within uh, the Black community, but with the other groups fighting each other. So, like, there's this Latino on Black experience where there's a rooted hate of Blacks, in, and I will say it, Latino and Asians. The Latino and Asians are both, when you look at the way we are structurally placed, we're at the bottom. We're only at the highest point when it comes diseases, to lack of um, access and education, and, you know, lack of access in an institution that comprises a society, healthcare, and but yet we fight each other. And so I think a lot of it deals with colorism. I mean, even with the Latino population, Mexicans don't like Puerto Ricans because they're darker hue, yet Puerto Ricans don't like Black people, even though they are Taino African. In India. So colorism has a lot to do. And I'm not saying all of them and all of those groups don't like black, but there is a rooted thing. And so when you have like this cacophony of, of, of disruption within our groups, it's hard for us to fight the one that's really the puppeteer that's stringing us along. And that's by design. So it's hard to parse and tease it out. And, the, and so that's why I wrote that book. And that's why that had to be the centered but like yeah we could start with the narcissist mind but this is where it leads to and this is what we're fighting now so much so that in my lifetime i may not see any kind of eradication or any kind of change of thought so yeah and and, and the puppeteer 
is Satan, right? Yeah. Uh, and and so I, I I can't quote the scripture. You being a theologian, you're better than I am on it. But it basically says that we're we're not dealing with natural forces. We're dealing with supernatural forces. Are you you still with me? Hello. Hello. Okay. All right. So I guess we've we've had a technical moment. So uh, we'll finish this up. Catch y'all on the other side. All right, and so we are back, and it is my fault because I called that joker out. <laughs> we were about ready to start talking about the devil, and all of a sudden we started having technical difficulties. So, uh, Gina, I'm glad you're back. Uh, but we were talking about it being more supernatural than natural, and and that was one of the important reasons why you wanted to get this book out because it's more than just kind of man-made solutions that we have to uh, to deal with. Right, of course. And everything is spiritual. I believe that we're spiritual beings having the human experience, but yeah, everything started in the garden, you know, just the fall of man and how sin proliferated. And, um, and I even, you know, without trying to not be, um, proselytizing of, uh, you know, my religion to others, because I, I have friends that are Hindus, atheists, but, you know, in my view, I just think Jesus Christ is the restorer. And so, you know, throughout the book, I'm sure you've seen all of the religious connotations that I've spouted about, just if it goes back to the cross, like he's a second Adam, he came to restore and make all things new. And I just believe we are the true Hebrews. I believe we are the true Israelites. And I believe Biblically, I mean, the whole Bible's black, and I believe that the promise of God is for us. We are the chosen, and that's why Satan is upset, and that's why there's an attack on black people. So when when we say that, because a lot of people, uh, you know, talk about um, white supremacy, and they look at white people in America and uh, you know, and, and white privilege. We've talked about those terms mm-hmm. and, and, and how people react to them, how, how white people react to it, how black people react to it or other people of color even. Um, but I agree with you. I think it, it is not natural um, for people to think the way that they, they do and to uh, come up with a system that preys on that kind of bad thinking for for right. a more polite way to say it. Um, so why do you think, and especially those people like the evangelical Christians, why do you think they have a hard time acknowledging that 
white supremacy is a supernatural incarnation from Satan and, and try to justify it or try to, or even try to be deniers and say that we don't do that now. And our ancestors didn't know any better. Uh, but yet the system still prevails and stay, they still benefit. Why do you think that evangelical Christians don't get that? I think they get it. I think that they're comfortable. Again, I mean, look at how slavery was justified through the scriptures. Um, and I think, too, that a lot of times when there is revelation that something is wrong and it's at, at the hand of the person that is performing the indiscretion, then they are now responsible for ameliorating or amending those ways. They don't want to change. It works for them. And, you know, religion is, is very dangerous. I'm not talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about Hinduism. I'm not talking about Confucian, whatever that is. I'm talking about like the religion that, you know, like the doctrine and the creeds, all the man-made rules that kind of take away from the centrality of, of who, the, who God is. And I think that, uh, you know, evangelical white Christians, the rules that they have set has ensured that they are postured in, in, in supremacy, that they benefit directly. And it's easy to manipulate through the scriptures. I think it just works with them. Like, you know, it's hard to break. It's, what, is the, what is that cliche that it's, um, it's seven days to learn a new habit for 21 days to break it? Yeah. I think they're in that 21 day psyche where it's just hard to break something. And they've been preaching it so long that a lie after a while becomes a truth. So I think they know, but I think they've convinced themselves that they're doing, you know, piety by saying, well, you know, at least we're, we're coming together. We're doing multi ethnic services together. I'm preaching at your church, I'm preaching at my church. We're going to Africa and we're, we're uh, doing mission work, but they're not really looking at, they are the undergird of why there needs to even be mission work uh, because of their hate. So I think they know, I just think that they're comfortable in it and they can justify it, you know, blasphemy so through the scriptures. And so I think, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a rabbit hole that they can't come out of because it, it's what keeps them elevated. That's well, my impression. And, 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 I would I would say that those 21 days have really been long because even you know even in the civil rights movement that was the biggest frustration for Dr. King that's the reason why he wrote that legendary letter uh from the Birmingham jail he was he wasn't he he wasn't as angered with the upfront outright segregationists because that's what he was expecting that's what they had trained to go after but he was upset with those ministers that claimed to be allies, that claimed that they right. get it, and they weren't doing anything, and they were silent. And, and you know, I've always, one of my favorite scriptures is, is a reminder that the spirit of God that dwells in us is not a spirit of fear. And that, and and but to me, it seems as though that people especially in the church and it's not just the white church there's some problems with the black church and i've and i've had some discussions on this show about that with with some experts um right. you know my my thing is that you know their silence the the biggest 
thing is that people don't you you mentioned it as far as bucking the system they don't want to come across as an outlier they want to come across as a rebel they think that it is a a bad look for them and yet they worship a man who is about as much as a rebel to the roman society that existed and even the jewish society that existed <laughs> than any right. other human being on earth and i and i I haven't been able to reconcile that. Yeah, well, and also too, there's a nationalistic political movement. I mean, that's why they love Trump. He was a nationalist. Yeah. I mean, so I don't think you can you can separate their politics from um, you know the white God that they posture as who they serve. I mean, you know, Jesus did not have the blonde hair and blue eyes. Right. Right, and I and and I get that. I I mean. I was I, I really was trying to give some people the benefit of the doubt, but you just kind of shot that down. But okay. <laughs> we won't we won't we won't throw the life preserver on this episode. So anyway, let's uh for the for the few minutes we got uh on the show, I, I want you to, to because this is something that you've kind of put out there on your own. You've been self-publishing this book. Uh so um what what and you, you, this book has been out for at least three years, right? Uh, two years. Yeah, it's going on its two-year anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> okay, two years. So, um, what are you, what are you doing to market a book, and how can people uh, find the book and, and or get the book for themselves? So, for the marketing of it, I, I'm doing things such as your awesome podcast, just putting it out there, and I'm I'm going to diverse podcasts. So. There are different hue and shades of folk that I'm kind of breaking bread with. Uh, and we're, we're exchanging synergies and trying to figure out this whole thing together. But I'm also going on a book tour in a few weeks. And I'm going to go to major cities on the East Coast um, and that are liberal, as well as on the West Coast, which is where I'll start. I'm leaving from LA, going to San Francisco, then to Seattle, Portland, Denver, San Diego, back to LA. Um, and I think from there, I'll be able to get some traction and, and the word of mouth hopefully will kind of spread the, the, the forest fire and, 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 you know, let this be a seminal moment in my book's life. Um, and I'm also doing some radio interviews, more on that, but, you know, I'll let you know um, that I'm, I'm trying to get connected with. And just allowing people to just come to my home. I'm, I'm doing some things. Uh, in my backyard where I'm inviting people in and feeding them and just talking about it, creating focus groups. So if they have questions about it, things that they felt I could have done better, we can talk about that too. So those are the ways that I'm trying to um, center this this conversation in this book and, and sending it out to the world. Um, forgot your last question. <laughs> so how do you how do how do we get the book? I mean it's oh, so the, thank you. The platform is really simple. Just Google, you'll find it anywhere. Amazon for print. It's also Kindle for ebook or Google Play, uh, Barnes and Noble slash Nook for anywhere books are sold. Just Google Stop Scapegoat No More and it will populate my book to the various ways in which you can purchase. And is there a way that people can reach out to you if they want you to kind of like do a seminar or consult? Uh, maybe move that backyard conversation, say, to a corporate office. Um, is there any way that people can can contact you for those kind of uh, dates? Yes, absolutely. 
So it's stop dash scapegoat no more altogether dot godaddysites.com. Or you can reach me at uh, my Instagram platform, which is at Gina has overcome and is restored. Okay. All right. Well, that's cool. So, uh, again, sorry for the technical difficulties, but we, we know that our, our uh, adversary is always busy, uh, yes. and especially since we were calling them out. But, um, Zena, I, I do appreciate you making this effort. I appreciate you, uh, this ministry that you're doing, uh, and uh, I'm glad that you're going out to all communities so that everybody can kind of see um, that it's more than a cultural thing. It's a, it's a personal thing. And then it's a spiritual warfare that we're fighting. So I commend you for, um, listening to, to God and, and going forth with it. And I wish you much success and, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll reconnect either through the podcast or some other way real soon. And thank you for allowing me to have space on this auspicious, um, forum that you've created. And I just, I'm going to be sending people your way because I like the work that you're doing. And um, I, you remind me of the late Congressman John Lewis and said, get into some good trouble. And I'm, I'm here for it. So thank you for allowing me to just to show up and, and be fully do as I am. I appreciate that. Yes, ma'am. All right, guys, we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. And um, wow, that was that was interesting. So, um, just amazing how that works out. It's like we were getting ready to talk about the the importance of understanding the supernatural nature of how we behave and how we deal with these issues, and of course, technical difficulties. So. But the enemy is here to, you know, to, uh, to deceive, to destroy, and kill, and and um, and that's me professing my Christian faith on that. Um, so, but you know, but he's not going to overcome, <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. So again, I thank Miss um, Dobson. Uh, for being patient and cooperative and, and making sure that we, we got got that interview done and got everything out that I, especially in trying to help promote her book and, and her ministry uh, in dealing with uh, that particular topic and, and how scapegoating is pervasive through everything that we're experiencing. Right. Um. But I also kind of mentioned at the beginning of her interview that this was not a typical 4th of July for me. This was not a happy one for me because this is actually the first 4th of July where we had a Supreme Court decision that took away a constitutional right or what had been deemed as a constitutional right. 
we've had decisions before, bad ones. Uh, and either prior to that, Frederick Douglass gave the historic speech um, explaining why he couldn't celebrate the 4th of July, especially while slavery was still in existence. And so it's always it's always a period for me, whether it's Independence Day, whether it's Flag Day, whether it's Constitution Day, Juneteenth, um, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, all those days, even Labor Day, all those days are holidays for a reason. And there's context behind why those holidays happen. We want to remember Memorial Day and Veterans Day as a constant reminder that the freedoms that we do enjoy in the United States have been paid for by blood, sweat, and tears. And what we try to highlight in Memorial Day is not all of the people that died for freedom died in a military uniform. Um, Megar Evers didn't die in a military uniform. Martin Luther King didn't die in a military uniform. Malcolm X didn't die in a military uniform. And, and yet, you know, we get narrow in that focus and think that the only people that fight for freedom are those that are enlisted. Um, and that is in the American historical context, far from the truth. Um, so, and we talk about veterans, those who survived those wars and who served. Uh, we need to remember the civil rights veterans. That's why my friend Cynthia Goodlow Palmer and, and the late Stephanie Parker Weaver and others put together this group to make sure that those civil rights veterans are honored just like military veterans are honored, right? And so you you have to continue to, 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 to bring everything into perspective. We have to look at everything in a in a in a introspective way as well as a total broad perspective of why we even have on this holiday. And the reason why we're having this holiday on the 4th of July is because several men felt that paying taxes, surrendering their wealth to a king literally an ocean away from them and at the same time, trying to impose other social norms, trying to squash the religious movements that were going on in the colonies. Um, you know, it was just too much. I mean, you know, you got to think England was not only a monarchy, but in some sense, a theocracy, because the Church of England, which we now know as the Episcopalian Church here, or what they called it, the Angl Anglican Church, um, 
you know, that was the official church of the country. So a lot of people said, yeah, I'll go to these, this new land. I'll set up a colony over here. Uh, pay my tribute, I guess, to the king. Uh, as long as I can practice the religion I want to practice and not have to conform to a church that was established so that the king could get divorces, right? And and that's not a knock on the Episcopalian church, but truth is true. Henry VIII started a church basically because prior to that, everybody was Catholic and the Catholic church frowned on one divorce, let alone multiple ones. So, but out of no matter how bad the intention, good comes out of it, right? Just like a lot of people say a lot of bad things happen with good intentions. Well, it works in reverse as well. A lot of bad things turn out good. Uh, and for those of you who are a member of the Episcopalian denomination, don't think that those of us who have experienced and studied the struggle uh, don't realize your contributions as a church uh, toward freedom for African-Americans and, and other people as well. But it's in, in light of the Supreme Court decision, there are a lot of people who support the decision. Let's keep that in mind now. There are a lot of people who fought for this decision to happen. There are a lot of people who push for it and they want more things, right? Um, to come. They, they want to do some more house cleaning as far as constitutional rights go because it doesn't jive with their religious philosophy or their, their sense of what America should be, right? And so they're, they're going to continue to push the envelope. And there were some people that were very upset because a lot of the ire initially when that decision came out was directed toward Clarence Thomas. And there were a lot of black women, a lot of white women who were saying, well, why is everybody going after Clarence Thomas when there is a white woman on the bench who was part of that majority to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I think that, you know, she's part of the Trump three. So I think she, you know, it was pretty much a clear agenda what she was going to do when she got there. So it's not really a surprise in a sense. But the other thing is, is that the white woman didn't write an opinion that said we were going to go after other rights too. Clarence Thomas did. So whatever criticism Clarence Thomas got, he brought that on himself because he said we need to go further in striking down Griswold Lawrence and Obergefell. He said that. Amy Barrett didn't say that. Clarence Thomas did. So therefore, that's why focus was on Justice Thomas is because he put himself in that position. And I, and I get it. People are sensitive about that. They're always going to be sensitive on the race thing and all that. But if you 
put yourself out there like that, then you should, you're going to get your praise from your supporters, but you're going to get criticism from your critics. That's how that's supposed to work. Now everybody's going to agree with you, you know, but, you know, when you put yourself out there, then that gives people that don't agree with you the license to say something about you or to you, right? And considering that Justice Thomas is now the oldest justice on the court, yeah, that it's not going to phase him. He's going to do his thing one way or the other. He's going to do his thing. And he's already happy about that. And, you know, the question about his wife and all that stuff, well, we'll let the Justice Department handle that and let the chips fall where they may. But that's why, I, I, you know, the whole concept of these, these people who were seeking religious freedom, who were seeking financial freedom, basically, um, decided that they were tired of it. And up until that point, there had been conflicts. Blood had already been shed. Uh, not only the Boston Massacre, where the first person who died was an African-American, Crispus Attucks. But, and that was in 1770. That was six years before the declaration was adopted. But you you had had the, the Boston Tea Party and you had Lexington and Concord, that battle in 1775. And so, in essence, we were already at war by the time the colonists declared their independence. But these men bought into a concept that Thomas Jefferson wrote down which being a learned man that he was, he was inspired by other documents like the Magna Carta. Um, and even though he wasn't a Christian in the sense that we look at it today, he did believe that there was a God. And so he, he, he incorporated all his thoughts and put it out there. And he reminded us that at any time, which is why some of these radical groups are trying to use the don't tread on me flag and all this other stuff. And, and, you know, and Patrick Henry's give me liberty, give me death speech was also inspiring to his fellow Virginian. Um, you know, and that's why a lot of these groups use that because Thomas Jefferson basically said that we human beings have a right not to suffer under tyranny of any kind. And, you know, that we are endowed with certain inalienable rights from God. And those inalienable rights, and you've heard me mention this before, is life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? And that's how he enumerated it. So, we celebrate that because that was a defining moment. And again, yes, he enslaved people and he was having sex with them. Yes, he was not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. But we don't celebrate Thomas Jefferson 
on Independence Day, we celebrate the concept that he authored a document and many men, John Hancock being the first one to sign it, that we declared our independence from an empire. An empire that would grow so big that literally the sun never set on it. We declared our independence from it and successfully over time defeated that empire and became our own country. But this was the first real step. This was the first documented step. And so we celebrate that. And, and, and what, we, what we seek to do as people become more in, into the society, such as Black people, such as Latino people, such as Asian American people, such as LGBTQ, such as, you know, any, any women, right? Any group that initially was not part of the, or that wasn't in the room, let's put it that way. We have adopted that language and we use that language along with the language in the constitution because it was not a legally binding document. The king was offended by it, but he wasn't going to respect it. But it was a declaration. It was basically defining the terms of what we were going to be. We were going to be independent of a kingdom. And that mindset is what was the philosophy or the backbone for any movement that has happened within the United States since, good or bad. So that's why we celebrate the 4th of July. Um, That's why we, we take it seriously because literally that was the document that birthed the nation, the nation that we live in. And for better or worse, it is still (laughs) the best example of a democratic republic government in the world. Um, There are countries that have policies that are better than us. And there are people that will make the argument, you know, that we're not as free as some of those places. But then again, we have a unique thing. Whereas we have this, this free market capitalism that from time to time can be reined in by the federal government that we established, the people. And and we can do all that for the most part without bloodshed. We've had some skirmishes and we actually had a civil war. But this country survived that. And we should be thankful for that. 
that we were able to not only survive, but to expand and thrive and go from a nation that was divided to considered one of the superpowers in the world. And when you look at other superpowers, we're basically the youngest. Um, you can have a make a question about the Soviet Union and all that, but the Soviet Union has come and gone, actually. So, yeah, we're we're the babies of the club, but we're we're the we're the strongest of the club too. So, if you don't believe me. As far as that's concerned, and feel free to utilize that American passport you have and travel the globe and spend some time in other countries and 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 realize a lot of things you take for granted will not be accessible to you, even your freedom of speech. Um, so there's there's that. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not happy. This 4th of July, this is not a happy 4th of July for me. It's a solemn one. Because we have to realize, and there's an old poem, and I can't remember it verbatim, but it's pretty much like they came for folks, and I said nothing. They came for these folks, and I said nothing. They came for these folks, and I said nothing. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak. Um. We have that ability here to speak. We have that ability to express. We have the ability to assemble. And we can do it all peacefully. We can do it all intelligently. We do have a right to defend ourselves, but we have a right to assert ourselves peacefully. And it is expected of us to do so. That's why you can have a balance between free market capitalism and federalized government. That's why you can have a balance between liberal and conservative political thought. That's why we should be able to coexist But there's this little evil thing called white supremacy, which I will always touch on in one way, shape, or form on this podcast that we have to get rid of because that is the one element that is upsetting the balance of this nation. Now, it's benefited a group of people, white people, for over 400 years, as my guests and other guests have pointed out. Um, But that's why we still don't have this balance. People like to say when tragedies happen, like the shooting that happened in Highland Park on this 4th of July, and school shootings and church shootings and grocery store shootings, that nightclub shooting, movie theaters, they want to say that God was not present. And I've always refuted that because the God I serve is omnipresent. The God I serve is always there, is, is, is always in the mist or the mix, however you want to say. And so 
that's not why these tragedies are happening. In my estimation, it's a reckoning. It is, it is the, everybody, historians like to say that slavery is the original sin of America. I say slavery is the biggest symptom of the original sin or the biggest result of the original sin, which is white supremacy. I think white supremacy is the original sin in the United States, even though other nations, including you, especially European nations kind of cultivated the idea. It's the United States of America that propelled itself partially because of that in spite of the contributions of people of color to make the United States the powerful nation that it is. That veil of white supremacy has always been there and it, and it has been a limit. I think America could be the greatest country that have, that has ever existed. Some people say it is already, but I think it could have been much better had it not had this veil over it. And until we repent of that sin, until we cleanse ourselves of that sin, until we get rid of that sin, then we really are not free. We are freer than most people on this planet. And we are free to roam about and do things within the confines of our world and our community. But to truly be free, to truly be closer to a blessing from God, to truly be that city on the hill that Ronald Reagan talked about, and John F. Kennedy too, for for us to really be that beacon of light that every nation is drawn to or should be drawn to. We have got to get rid of white supremacy. We've got to get rid of that mindset because white supremacy begets white privilege and you know the rest of the story. That will truly be Independence Day for the United States. More so even than that fourth day of July in 1776. Yes, that date defined us as a nation. It was the birth of our nation, the true birth of that, not some 1915 movie. (laughs) That was the birth of a nation. That was the birth of an ideal of a nation that could be all things to all people even with our disagreements and our diversity. It could be that true home. But until we get rid of that original sin, then we're going to be stuck. And we're never going to reach our full potential, as President Obama likes to say. You know, there's some people that have benefited from it. Previous president clearly benefited from it. 
um, the current president gets some cachet from it from time to time. Although he's been exposed to better thought, the older he gets, the more that he serves, the more that he's exposed. You can see he's changing. But until it it is totally eradicated, it's always a fallback for one group of people. And it's and it's a knife in the back to the rest of us. So if you have enjoyed barbecue and fireworks, baseball games, whatever activities you have done on this day, cool. Because that's an American thing to do. If you were at parades that didn't get shot up, awesome. And and we need to remember those people who were wounded and, and at least the last report I saw, six people lost their lives. We hope that law enforcement authorities catch this guy dead or alive. Um, but, you know, I just want people to, to understand that this is a different time. And we are under some distress. But I hope that the majority of the people can come together and start creating a better path for us. I'm not expecting everybody to join in, but I'm hoping that the majority, an overwhelming majority of people take action and really seek to get us to a level of true independence and to get us off of this um, this kick, for lack of a better term, of white supremacy, this, this, this original sin. We can be freed from that. We truly can be the America that Thomas Jefferson and everybody else from that point forward envisioned. Until next time.